Hey there, Next Real listeners, this is Andy. Before we dive into this episode, I wanted to let you know about an exciting change. As you may have noticed, we have been including episodes of one of our other shows, Movies We Like, in this feed. Well, we are thrilled to announce that Movies We Like has grown so much that it's now ready to strike out on its own. From now on, to catch the latest episodes of Movies We Like, you'll want to head over to its dedicated feed and hit that subscribe button. We've got plenty of other great content lined up, and we don't want you to miss a thing. Don't worry, though, the next Real Film Podcast isn't going anywhere. We'll still be bringing you the same in-depth discussions and analysis of your favorite films right here in this feed. So if you love what we do with Movies We Like, be sure to search for it in your favorite podcast app and subscribe today. Thanks for being a part of our podcast journey, and now, let's get back to the show. Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of Movie Conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to sport our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee, or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe? We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. Welcome to the Next Reel's Movies We Like, part of the True Story FM Entertainment Network. I'm Andy Nelson, and that over there is Pete Wright. That's Pete Wright. On today's episode, we have invited storyboard and concept artist Anson Jew to talk about The Reflecting Skin, a movie he likes. Sometimes terrible things happen quite naturally. Are you a scarecrow, son? No. I was hoping you were. We'll be seeing you. Would you like that? Every time you make your ma cry, you kill an angel. I make my ma cry all the time. Sometimes I just look at her and she cries. Any vampires around in these parts, Pa? Wouldn't be at all surprised. 
see your face in there. Faster. I love her. Understand? I love her. Poor Seth. It's all so horrible, isn't it? The nightmare of childhood. She's got him now, Aben. There's nothing I can do. Hanson, welcome to the show. Hey, Hanson. Great to be here. Well, we are excited to talk to you about this movie, which is a really interesting film to watch and to discuss. Uh, but before we jump into the movie, uh, let's talk a little bit about you and your history. So you uh, do storyboard and concept art. Um, how did you kind of get that start? Did you did you always want to be an artist and it kind of led to that? Or, or kind of what was the the journey that you took? It was one of the very few things that I could do as a kid uh, better than most other kids. It was uh, pretty much a failure at things like sports and stuff, but I, I could draw. So I knew whatever I was going to do, uh, I was going to end up in some kind of art-related feel, uh, field, you know, as a you know magazine illustrator or a comic book artist or something like that. And that was, that was kind of the, the goal uh, growing up in school, doing publications and stuff. But it turned out that uh, um, the first job I ended up getting, uh, first big real job, uh, was working at uh, at a video game company at LucasArts. Well, I, and previously, I had, I had worked at a, uh, at, a, at a magazine, but mostly, but the first, I'd say, full-time, 40-hour uh, uh, a week um, job was working as an animator and lead artist at LucasArts. And, you know, video games had just started. This is like uh, early 90s, late 80s. It was basically like filmmaking, a lot of what we were doing, animating, setting up shots, storyboarding them. Uh, and I last I lasted there for nine years. But, you know, uh, growing up, my true love was really film. I really was into special effects. I was basically a, a child of Star Wars as a... You know, when I w- when Star Wars came out in '77, I was just about the right age for that to have an effect on me, and I wanted to make movies. So, by uh, the uh, early 2000s, I moved to Los Angeles and said, "Let's hit, uh, let's do, let's do storyboards." My brother actually is—I have an identical twin brother who is also a storyboard and concept artist, and he was working at ILM for a while, and he moved to um, Los Angeles. And was getting um, a good amount of work there, so I kind of uh, followed along. Uh, so here I am, and I've worked on dozens of films: Sky Captain, Prince Caspian, uh, Curse of Chucky. Absolutely, I, Warcraft, Clifford, Passengers, like your Wonder Woman. Like your catalog is is extensive in terms of movies. Certainly, movies we have we've seen and and are enamored by the design of. I'm curious how. Like, how, what does the job look like right now when you get a new project like this? Because we've heard all the stories of how storyboarding is is evolving and changing, and and you know the use of of all different kinds of technology to previs movies. And how does that impact you? I'm looking at your Christopher Robin stills on your webpage, and they are beautiful line art <laughs> still well you know a lot of times a lot of times it's faster just to do a, a, a drawing and so, so even if you're going to be doing uh previs with 3d models 
um, you know, it still takes time to, um, to build all the models, build all the sets. There's like a, a lot of downtime. So you might as well just get started coming up with kind of um, visual ideas before any of that happens. So that's just like a lot of time and resources before anybody sees anything that even resembles movies. Storyboards are still faster in that way. They're being we're being asked to do a lot more like uh, animatic type storyboards. I'm am seeing that trend happening, mm-hmm. uh, where where you're not just drawing the boards on a piece of paper to hand to the crew, which is still something that happens, especially like in TV. But they're also asking you to sequence it in time and things like that. You, they're asking you to do that. They're so you're not giving it to somebody else to plug it in. I actually don't do that quite a lot, but I do see that I do see that happening with a lot of people that I know in the uh, in the industry. They're being asked to do that. Interesting, but uh, you know, I've, I do it just for presentation purposes. I think people just tend to like to look at at things in time with music more than just looking at the image. So, forgive my, uh, my the nerdy kind of pedestrian question, but I I am a nerd and kind of pedestrian so um what's your tool set like what do you what is your tool set today are you a a wacom tablet guy are you still pen and paper like how do you how do you do the job what do you count on when i first started i was uh i was pencil and paper uh made a a kind of uh slow hard transition a slow difficult transition to going all digital but i I eventually got uh, to all digital and i use um a lot of people use photoshop i tend to use uh, sketchbook pro because i don't like having huge complicated uh, uh menus all over my artwork so yeah um sketchbook for the purposes of doing storyboards is actually really good because it has a, a very uh simple intuitive interface so all you all i mean all you really need to do storyboards is it's something that can they can make lines and fill in fill in uh grays and stuff if you've got that that's really in the end all you need you know just a few small tools and most every drawing tool out there has that. So I, uh, I kind of tend to choose, you know, the, the simplest one, all those, other, all that other stuff just kind of makes me dizzy. So I just don't want it in my face. <laughs> yeah. I, I only know sketchbook from the, it's, I think it's, it's iPad app is, is really lovely. Yeah. When you start a project, this is uh, also kind of a nerdy question. Like, do you, have a standard aspect ratio that you're working in or do you find out like what their aspect ratio is that they're planning on shooting so you can make sure you're drawing the same scale? Yeah, definitely you want to work with uh, the production, you know, what what they're asking for. And uh, they'll, they'll, they'll usually figure out what they want or what they're heading for. If you're doing it in TV, it's it's almost automatically you're doing... 16.9 these days. 16, nine. Yeah. But uh, uh, for for film, usually the director will have an idea of what he wants and how he wants it to look, and you just kind of go with that. A lot of a lot of what we're doing is just listening and trying to um, trying to visualize what the director wants, and we just kind of bring our own interpretation to it because I'm you know I'm not that person, but I, I I can bring what I bring my own experience to the table, and between myself and the director, you get you get something that. Uh, you, you wouldn't get get before. You know, that's where the where the magic happens a little bit. 
You, I, I want to talk about that magic though briefly because I think that's that that's the thing that I I have trouble wrapping my head around. That the director and say the writers come to you and you're talking about just here's here's what it generally is going to look and feel like, and then I look at your catalog of images and I see the before and after, and my mind is blown at the connection between what you put down in a sketch and what gets created on screen. Do you remember the first time what you had in your head showed up in a movie? For you, like, does that did that give you an emotional kick in the in the gut? Because oh, yeah, oh, yeah. I mean, that's that's uh, that, that's that's. I think a lot of storyboard artists when they watch a movie, they're they, uh, that they've worked on their thing is how close do they stick to my, yeah. my board? How close do they stick to their board? <laughs> you know, and you know that it's not going to. go I mean, you know, we're not there on the set actually with the cinematographer. We don't we we don't we don't know all everything that's happening on the ground and everything that they can see. So. Um, we can only take a take a stab at it, but uh, but when we see something, oh, that looks exactly like the way I I I, I drew this out. So you know uh, that, that that really you know says oh, yeah, I made my mark, I made my mark. <laughs> <laughs> Legacy, <laughs> and, and uh, that's especially with live action. In in uh, I worked in animation as well. In animation, actually, the job is slightly different. And what you're 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 practically directing. If you're doing it uh, for animation, they're following they're following your your drawings pretty much directly. But uh, uh, it's a little bit different between live action and animation. How is it different for video game storyboarding in in terms of the work and the process that you do? Uh, that's actually not that different. Most of the time, if you're doing storyboards for a video game, it's usually for cutscenes, which are just like short snippets of short films. Of, movie they're short yeah. short films there may be the case where where there's there's like a branching structure where where if this happens then this and this so so you start at one point and then start boarding for all the all the different um versions of things that might happen but for the most part it's pretty much like doing you know a regular uh like an animated board the animators will have their own take on things but you know your 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 initial vision is kind of what sets things in motion fascinating Wow. How uh, far into the uh, process, or I mean, usually it's a pre-production job, this kind of storyboarding concept art. But I mean, I know there are, especially in films like, you know, Sky Captain in the World of Tomorrow, which was like, so designed from start to finish, like, is have there been projects like, where you have found yourself like coming back over and over during production to help kind of revisualize or come up with something as the project is actually going? Yeah, sure. Yeah, uh, Sky Captain is definitely one of them. Usually, if uh, something, I mean, we're talking about with with Sky Captain is something like uh, it's almost an animated film, right? So yeah. you know, every all the backgrounds and everything you see there is it's all fake. So everything really has to be thought out ahead of time. You know, that was one of the few areas where, where like the entire film was boarded from beginning to end in most movies they hire a storyboard artist just to basically do tricky action scenes or effect scenes uh in this particular movie it was uh and um it was boarded from uh beginning to end you know uh, they the, in in the editing process you know they basically made an animated uh an animatic from my boards and uh um you know replaced each shot as they came as they came in from the animators so you know obviously things don't don't go exactly as I uh, as I draw them, but it's it's kind of like the starting process. You know, I, I come up with this shot, but you know, maybe the animator came up with something 
that uh, he sees as being a little bit better. The nerve, right? The nerve. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, you know, it's it's it's, uh, it's uh, filmmaking is not a place for ego. So right, for sure. Uh, you gotta you gotta let gotta let uh, the other members of the team get there. Their That's why I love the whole idea of of just feeling that experience of the thing that you you sketched on screen, like that just is a, a bit of of joy in being even a part of the process, Ooh, let yeah. alone conceiving of these ideas that that expand so far beyond your your pencil. That's extraordinary. Well, and it's such a unique art form anyway. I mean, I, I, when I was, you know, before I went into film school, I, I picked up a book that was all, it was like shot by shot or film in motion or something like that. And I was just fascinated. It was all kind of teaching you about storyboarding and, and like it, maybe not necessarily, I mean, maybe for people who wanted to become storyboard artists, but I think largely just so you could understand what was in them and how you would interpret them and everything. And just like the the way that storyboard artists capture the movement, because it's not necessarily always a still frame. There's camera moving, there's people moving, there's so many things that are taking place. And just the way that a storyboard artist captures like the energy of action and everything that's going on, I just, I find fascinating. And it's, it's an art form uh, all by itself that I think, it's it's one of those midway art forms that never really gets the praise that it probably deserves because nobody's going to the movies to look at storyboards. They're all going to look at the the finished product, just like a script. It's like the script is just a midway point. But I, I find it to be such an integral part and so fascinating what the storyboard artists and concept artists do in order to help people realize what it is they're trying to kind of capture in that final product. Right, yeah. Uh, you know, like whenever you read a book or whenever you read a, uh, a comic book, I think most people have the experience of they're playing a movie in their mind. You know, even if they're just watching still pictures in their mind, they're 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 developing their own motion and stuff. You know, as a reader, you know, if you're reading a book, you're, you've got your own camera angles in there. And as an artist, I have the you know kind of ability to express that on paper in a way that uh, other people can see it. So it's it's it's, it's like you know seeing a movie come to life, you imagine it in your mind. And then it's, it's, it's great that somebody else can kind of peek in and see, see what uh, your idea of things are. On, on one of these bigger movies, uh, you know, let's say you're working on something like Wonder Woman. Are you, how many, how many plates are you doing for, for the film? Oh, it can, it, it's, it's, it, it varies from, um, uh, job to job depends on the complexity of the show and, you know, how many days you're working on it. Something like more for Sky Captain versus something, you know, that like Christopher Robin. I worked on Sky Captain like eight to nine months. I worked on um, I worked on Wonder Woman for, you know, probably less than a month. Wow. And uh, maybe about a month. Yeah. Yeah. Most storyboards do, you know, you know, between like, uh, uh, say, 16 to 25 boards a day. And, you know, however many uh, days that, that encompasses is, is wow is a lot of boards that uh, Wonder Woman was I, I don't I, obviously if, if you know any of this story, uh, you know, I, I'd love to hear it. But just in terms of a compliment on the production, like the when I look at your storyboards, uh, I, I found the closing credits montage in Wonder Woman, one of the most extraordinary closing credits, beautiful closing credit sequences of any of the big superhero movies. And I'm looking at your storyboards and it, they are some of them are plate for plate what they did to animate 
in beautiful, like water chalk watercolor kind of a, a montage at the end of that sequence. And and that is something like I've I've forgotten so much of the movie itself, but I've never forgotten that end sequence because of the beauty. And it feels like homage. It's it is sending to the original artwork that that was created for that thing. It's just gorgeous. Do you have any sense of if they if they used or were inspired by your work directly? You know, I feel like I was I was actually on there very early in the process. So I think a lot of stuff that I, I actually did ended up on essentially the cutting room floor on that particular movie. But they may have recycled them for for like the the second movie. They like have a um, arena sword fight, which they didn't really have. They didn't put that aspect of um, the Wonder Woman origin story in the first movie. But they did try to incorporate elements of that into the second movie. You know, sometimes I, I think I think that they might have been looking at my my um, my boards as maybe you know a jumping off point to to do stuff for the second movie because I designed this armor for, for Diana to wear in her, her arena fight. that was kind of bird-like. And, uh, and then in the second movie, movie I saw, well, that looks quite a bit like it. And I, you know, I don't read the comic book. So, I mean, whether or not I, 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 ha- I did something that looks like the comics, I don't, I don't, I don't know, but it, it certainly wasn't intentional, but it, if not, you know, maybe they, they saw something in my boards. I, and, and I think this gives us a good jumping off point to start talking about the film that uh, you uh, wanted to chat about today, which is uh, uh, Philip Ridley's The Reflecting Skin from 1990. I had never seen this before. Pete had never seen this before. Uh, what a fascinating film. Uh, and certainly one that allows for a lot to talk about. When, how did this film enter your life? Uh, is it something that you saw in 1990 when it first came out? I do remember a long time ago seeing a, a review from, um, on, uh, I saw Roger Ebert review it on TV, but it never came into my town. There didn't seem to be any way to uh, see it, but I, I did hear from a bunch of other concept storyboard artists. In this case, this is like, I think my brother was having uh, some conversation with another story, uh, with another concept artist, uh, Ian McCaig, about uh, some movies that were visually stunning. Reflecting Skin came out, and then I think you know this was in, during the video age. And when I when I saw it on um, in a video store, I was able to you know kind of like bring a VHS copy home and really take a look at it. I think Ian may have brought a copy into the. Um, conference room at, at LucasArts and had, had, had a little screening for a few of the artists to kind of look at it. I think that was the, may, maybe the very first time I saw it. Visuals alone, any artist could just looks at that and just says, oh, that's just friggin' amazing. Um, so I made sure that, I, uh, you know, I went to my video store and, you know, whenever it, whenever it came up, I would see it. I, mean, I think it was one of those things where it just, for whatever reason, didn't get good distribution or, or whatever it was. But I, I, I just loved it for the visuals. And the story was also just amazing as well. And But uh, one of the things I noticed visually was, this, was how much it just felt like it, this thing was a a moving version of a, like an Andrew Wyeth painting. Everything there looked exactly like an Andrew Wyeth painting or maybe like a James Wyeth painting. It's, it's visually stunning uh, from start to end. Looking at Philip Ridley's career, I mean, it's it's uh, Philip Ridley is definitely a 
I think you would call him perhaps more a straight up storyteller rather than a filmmaker. I mean, this is a person who has worked in books, in cinema, in theater, in song, in poetry, <laughs> like is, is not somebody who has uh, settled on a particular format is just somebody who likes to explore um, art in all of its aspects. And this is his first feature film. Um, he had written the craze, which came out the same year as this, and then wrote and directed this. And as especially a first film, like it just like from that opening image of that golden wheat field, all the way to that final image of our young boy, like screaming to the heavens and his, and his hands in the air. Uh, it's just like every single frame. I'm like, it's kind of shocking to me when I, I see a first film like this and I'm like, where did Philip Ridley go? Because it is so visual. Like this is a, this is a visual storyteller who knows how to capture image in so many interesting ways all through the film. Like I was constantly astounded by choices. And, and I don't know if I was like, I wonder if this is one of the reasons that you picked this movie because it is just so visual. And as a storyboard artist, I'm like, uh, it's easy to eat up yeah. like any frame of this, you know, like from the trucking shots to just the, the way that, uh, you know, people were captured. I mean, it's just, oh, it's got beautiful. the extreme close-ups. Like it, he just loves extreme close-ups of the kids, mm -hmm. of the screaming yeah. of the blood on dolphin's face from the frog of the frog. Come on, frog. What are we <laughs> right, doing yeah. with that? See who's ever done that. <laughs> right. I mean, if you think of, think of it, the, just the fact that there's so much to look at, despite the fact that really, I mean, there's no, there's no big action scenes in it. There's no, no uh, physical, you know, uh, gore or violence or any or supernatural stuff. None of that is there. It's really just people talking. And how do you make, you know, they're, they're talking in a very limited environment. Uh, so how do you make that interesting? And he, he made everything interesting. And it's like every shot was just fascinating to look at. And, and I, I feel like the intentionality of the film, the intention of making a horror story out of the beliefs of children yes. that that happens to be tied into the real world events, right? The fact that this supposed vampirism in, in Seth's mind is actually radiation deterioration from exposure to radiation from the bomb is kind of an extraordinary connection. Like I really, I really loved that bit of, of the fable of, of the movie. Uh, and I, I don't think I connected with the overall movie as, as well. Like I didn't, I didn't love the performances of the kids, and I think Viggo Mortensen outclassed this movie at every, in every shot. But it's so gorgeous, and what it was trying to do is really special. Like, I, I walked away from it just kind of a little bit confused. I would say appropriately confused, but enamored by the the lusciousness of the planes and the subject isolation and the, the structures that they found and captured and all of that sort of uh, uh, absolved any of the, the sins of the film in my eye for the overacting of the police chief who felt sort of comical to me. Uh, <laughs> I don't know when I was supposed to take him seriously with the eye patch and the hand that didn't. It felt like I was in a uh, uh, young Frankenstein for a minute. Well, was a little bit on the oddball side where, where I think, you know, this is, this is like David Lynch. Yes. The, the David Lynch type of, type of thing where things were a little bit odd, but there's nothing supernatural or, or weird happening. It's just, there's nothing there that can't be dis, uh, explained by real life situations. So it's just, it's in, in a very Lynchian way is, is basically just exploring the strangeness of reality, you know, yeah. real life, very, very odd, uh, can be very, very odd and grotesque. 
in in its own way. I mean, lots of heads and skulls and stuff, you know. But that's just the West. Age of the per, the, of the main characters in this story just is eight uh, going on nine. That at that age, you're you're really just trying to sort out reality from you know like imagination. You know, things and uh, things are always being hidden from you. Uh, you don't know right from wrong. And and kids, you know, kids at that age are capable of in, incredible cruelty. And I, I remember when I was a kid, you know, I wasn't much different. I did some pretty horrifying things looking back at it. Well, I'm glad you brought that up, Hanson. We'd like to litigate those right now on the show. <laughs> But but that was it. And when you like to that point specifically, like the the real horror of this movie, the most horrific sequence in this movie to me is when the three kids are sitting in the barn together and they get to the point screaming, uh, you know, uh, Eben is crying, Eben is crying, and the close-ups on that face, it's shot like a like a cultist sort of event. Like it's just horrible you, you the unspeakable cruelty to others like before they've e- been able to turn on the empathy vibe right that is is extraordinary it's just awful and i don't know if by the end of the movie as he's screaming the last surviving child uh in this community right um if if that is a signal that he's learned anything, that he's changed and grown up in a way beyond dealing with his extraordinary grief. I think so. I think this is where he's he finally had, has a, a taste into the real reality because he had a hand in um in uh, Dolphin Blue's death. He he, he did he did he was he, he hadn't processed, you know, what part was real and what part was uh, was his imagination and uh, basically he let her he let her die. And Kim. And Kim too, right? He saw that he he would that like watching those pieces come together and form grief on him is is kind of extraordinary. Yeah. Well, and I, I also I, I can't I, I do wonder if there's an element of that final moment from from young Seth when he's screaming there. I mean, obviously his brother is now devastated as well. I mean, his life is in ruins and in the process of all of this, and because of the way that he's been seeing the world and seeing things unfold, thinking that it's her when it's really these these uh, guys in this uh, this Cadillac that keep driving around, they're still out there. He has not stopped them, and he could be next. It's entirely possible that he is next. Yeah, and it's I don't know. I found that to be such a fascinating growing up journey that he has here, and it's almost like. His childhood, like we're witnessing his childhood end at that moment uh, when he sees Dolphin dead on the in the uh, field there, and that run and scream that he has is like his his awakening as somebody who is able to process things and is now screaming at the world for realizing like, oh my god, all of this is something else, and I can't believe that I am a part of this. I mean, it's incredibly powerful. He's it's like being born and 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 uh entering the real world mm-hmm. yeah right right uh, it's a uh, it's a uh, you know and it's just a just a very scary thought that we and we all go through it there's also an angle of the film where i mean it takes place in the 50s uh right after world war ii cameron comes home partway through the film he had been working you know on the bomb and pete kind of uh, you know alluded to the fact that he is suffering from radiation poisoning from all of his work on that but there's also this side of the story that is dealing with homosexuality and his father, who, I, I don't know, the way that I read it is likely his father had been in a gay relationship with 
you know, somebody, I, I read online, somebody had, had thought that it might have been uh, Dolphin's husband. And I was like, well, that's an interesting perspective, like, and thought maybe that's why he hung himself. But there's definitely this element of the world of the 50s and the attitude of homosexuality at the time and the way that anything unacceptable like that, you have to kind of like bury. And, you know, this woman, Seth's mom, ends up marrying him right away quickly to kind of help him through all of that. And and there's an interesting side of like getting into a relationship with somebody that you love who you know is never really going to be able to love you. But it's like this the way that society kind of forced these relationships to kind of become where it just ended up being a difficult relationship for everybody all through it. And, and that scene of the father, when he like immolates himself, he like Ugh. drinks all the gasoline and just blows himself up. I mean, it's just like, it just it really kind of like hit me like, whoa, like that, that having to live the way that he was living for as long as he had, and then that final point when he suddenly was being accused of these these things again, it's like was his breaking point. I mean, it's it's powerful the way that the film is portraying some of these things. Right? Yeah. I mean, it's it's all it's all you know. People are just trying to get along, and uh, they find themselves persecuted. You know, for for something that they probably you know didn't didn't do do. I mean, if you if you do one thing, everything else that you do becomes uh, suspect, even if you're clearly dead. You know, that type of thing is just the per- persecution for all we know you know maybe the mother was also when she was a lesbian for for all we know yeah uh, and uh just trying to to avoid some kind of persecution can i get a reading from you guys on the ossified dead fetus that kim and seth find that is just a found object in the barn do we have any connection? Did you read any connection to to that fetus to the rest of the story that I missed? Well, to me, to me, it just seems like okay. That's another another area where the entire community is is uh, persecuting somebody. So uh, this person couldn't deal with uh, you know just had to get had to get rid of the baby in some way. You know, say well, okay, well it, it died, or, or somebody had to abandon a baby and keep everything the secret there might have been some kind of shame happening there right somebody had to abandon a, a baby most likely in that community because they would, they would be persecuted for some reason interesting so it's just a signal to the uh, of uh, another signal of the hardships the cultural hardships of small town living mm-hmm. um that that they're just sort of trusting us to walk along with that doesn't necessarily need to be connected to the story it just needs to be a sign yeah well, and I, I, I don't know, the way that I read it also is like, it, it's a sign of the childhood, uh, mis, or not really misunderstanding, but just like the lack of understanding of what's going on in the real world and finding these things that, you know, are grotesques, you know, I mean, you know, doing what they do to the frog, finding this, this uh, ossified uh, baby wrapped up in newspaper that he keeps. He keeps yeah. under his bed as a connection to Aiden that becomes for him, this is a- Aiden's angel, and it becomes his communication point. And it's, it is so interesting that none of the reality of the world hits him at all. And I mean, you know, his parents are not people that he can really talk to. I mean, well, one, his dad had 
killed himself by that point in the film. Um, but two, his mom is just like this broken woman who he clearly doesn't have any relationship with her. Um, she thinks she has a relationship with Cameron until he comes home and we realize, well, there's no, really not much of a relationship there either. Uh, so she is kind of this isolated thing. And so he has nobody other than, oh, I'm just going to attach everything to this this thing. Right, yeah. Definitely. I think that's that, that's pretty, pretty astute. I think the danger of it, uh, on the other side of that coin, is that the significance of a human fetus, it becomes Chekhov's human fetus, right? Like, you, there is an expectation that something will tie because of the significance of it being a human fetus that he found. And while I absolutely agree, and I see everything that you're saying, I do think it can read as a loose end, that we never got to see what the connection was to that, that thing that has an outsized significance in sort of Western human culture. Right. Right? That he never once thought to go tell somebody that we never once got a connection to the actual story. So I totally can read it in that sort of David Lynchian, we're going to trust you to just go with the story. But but there, that is that could also be an open thread. Well, uh, I, I, I can see that. I, I didn't really, you know, uh, you know, to me, I, I, I kind of like totally more or less accepted it as just something that was, um, you know, maybe left, left behind for some, somebody had some reason to do it, but we don't, it's not really important that we know what the re- reason is, I think, but uh, it, 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 it makes me question every other parent that we come well, across, we, right? We, see, <laughs> we, we get a good look at them and I think we yeah. get, get the idea of what kind of people, there's not a lot of people in the neighborhood and, but they do have, you know, yeah, uh, they got uh, secrets. They they have, a, they have a collective personality, and I think... Yeah. <laughs> I mean, if if the sheriff was that sheriff in my town, I would probably be pretty tight-lipped as yeah. well. Like, <laughs> what, a, what a creepy dude. Although, I I mean, I, I know, Pete, you thought it was kind of uh, comical, but I'm like, there's something so perfect about this level of this sheriff with the eye that had been stung out by a wasp, with the hand <laughs> that had been... Uh, I can't remember what uh, it was. The snapper turtle ripped his hand off, and then the dog almost chewed his ear off. Chewed his ear. <laughs> it was so. Uh, I mean, you said it was kind of almost too comical, but there was something about that level, and then tied into this story with uh, such absurdest things, like finding a, a this dead baby that he is talking to. That felt it ended up becoming such a part of just kind of like this strange, I mean, Lynchian, I guess, you know, world, but it's just like everything is so off here. And I, I didn't end up having an issue with the, the comedy of the sheriff because, and maybe it's because his monologue about all of these things. And he's just like, you know, just all this crap keeps happening and here I am. And, you know, I don't know. I just, I ended up buying into it as much as I bought into anything else. Possible. I mean, it's all, all very unlikely, but it's, it's 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 totally possible. Which is the point of the movie is that even the strangest things, uh, you know, uh, even the things that we see as strange are, are quite normal, actually. Yeah, right. I I feel like there is there's such a a sort of a biblical connection, right? Like it, as I'm watching the the sheriff go through that monologue, I keep thinking this is this is the story of Job if he had been put in the position of uh, being a small town sheriff after all of these things keep happening to him. Like he's literally 
physically dismembered slowly but surely, and yet he is still trying to do his vision of justice, you know? But that's sort of the whole town is put upon by events. How does it survive, right? That's that's kind of the ultimate question is, does the town survive? And we haven't even, t- I mean, we, we haven't really like, uh, really investigated the Cadillac yet, right? The Cadillac is this injection of outsiders to the town, testing its resilience. And it's doing so in the most violent way, attacking the children of the town subversively, like ripping the foundation out from under the fabric of whatever this town is to become. It's like erasing the future before the future gets a chance to assert itself. And that is yet another uh, sort of stake in the heart of this small town life. Can it survive after such an infection, such a violation? That's a big question. Right. And that's the other thing. I mean, I don't think it was an accident. They made that uh, uh, the car, you know, that gorgeous black Cadillac, all, the whole idea of uh, something that is extremely destructive is also at the same time very, very sexy. Right, you see, you see, you see him. See, see the first time the, the car drives up, you see the look on Seth's face when he sees that thing driving. This is the most amazing thing I've ever seen. Yeah. Oh, just the way that he runs his hand along it as he's going down to fill it up. Sure. Yeah. It's, it's, it's just like that's how that's how you know a lot of the ills in our our our, our society happen. Something sexy comes up, and we're all fascinated by it, and then we find out this is probably something we don't want in our in our midst. Well, and that it is both sexy and sexual, right? That's the other side of the, of, of the, like the violation to this town is the first time he sees Seth, right? He runs his finger across his face and on his nose as, as he's exploring him in a way that is intimate beyond friendly, right? It is inappropriate. And as much as this movie is addressing the the views of sexuality and demonizing sexuality and what that leads to, this infection is doing the exact same thing, right? It's like coming in and forcing itself in this way that is inappropriate, again, toward children. Yeah. Although to that end, it's interesting that they also are the ones who end up killing Dolphin. It's, I was surprised by that. Yeah. I, I admit I was surprised by that. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about uh, a dolphin. You know, I I don't know if I've seen a lot of uh, Lindsay Duncan, but um, I mean, what do you think of her portrayal here as as Dolphin Blue? I thought she was really good. I mean, it's it's it's, it's, a, it's a very strange role. You know, this kind of uh, uh, tortured widow and uh, who has you know kind of some maybe maybe odd poetic ways about her um you know like a lot of stuff this is i can't imagine this would be a very easy movie to act in because there's there are are a lot of things where where it could get comical if you don't play it right and i think i think uh, she did she did a great job of pulling pulling that off and plus her look and the way they made her look in in this movie she totally looks like um Helga, the uh, from the um Helga paintings of uh of uh andrew wyatt's uh Helga. He looks. She looks exactly like that, and uh, I don't know. I thought it was an interesting character. She's interesting. She is one of those faces. She was in, in one of my favorite movies, About Time. She was Mum in About Time, which was a terrific little time travel 
romance, but she's been in more stuff than that. I mean, she was she had a, a bit in Star Wars. Yeah, she was in Star Wars as a as a as like a female three PO. Yeah. Also a voice in the recent uh, series as Octavia in His Dark Materials, the um, um, Pullman adaptation, which was just lovely. I feel like I've seen more of her performances in recent years than anything at this time. Like, I don't think probably it wasn't until like the last decade or so that I've seen some of her films. And so I don't know, seeing her at this point in her career, I just found her to, she has a really unique look. And as a British person in this rural American community, uh, like she already feels like an outsider. She looks like an outsider. Like she's either walking in like all black or all white. Like she just, she just, she does feel vampiric or angelic. Like there's this dance that I think Ridley is taking with her. And I don't know, there's just such a mystery to her. I can see why right out of the gate, like you have that, the moment when she's coming and she, the whole frog incident, which is definitely one that I'll never forget. Um, but then you can see why Seth has this draw to her. And as he and his other friends are running away, he's the one who stops and looks back. And I don't know if there was a little hint of like guilt. I think there probably was a hint of guilt that he had, but also I just think that there is this draw to this mysterious woman that he has that he can't kind of ever quite get away from that really drives him through the rest of the film. It's like this draw, but also like this fear of this woman. And then you get into like scenes, like when he comes over to her house to apologize and she has that fantastic heart wrenching, frightening monologue. It's amazing. Like, I, I just, I don't know. What did you think of that, that scene when she's talking to him and like showing him her box of treasures, we'll call them from her, uh, from her dead husband. It's teeth, man. You call them treasures. It's teeth. It's teeth, teeth and it's, hair. It's just, it's, you know, yeah, but uh, yeah, I, I think it was you know just the just the fact. I mean, it, it, you know the fact that she tells tell, tells him, yeah, we used to we used to set uh, uh, put uh, firecrackers on cats' tails and watch them run. You know, I've met kids like that. You know, in my, my in my life, you know that that actually happened, and it just kind of just shows shows you that that you know. The world is full of all kinds of, uh, as adults, you look at it, it's unimaginable cruelty. But uh, but as kids, you haven't figured that out yet. And it's, um, it's amazing. It's just an interesting look. Well, and that's the that's the most interesting connection, too, right? As kids, you haven't figured out that, that out yet. But she's not a kid. She's not a kid. No, we never figure it out, I don't think, really. Right. We just, we just put more, we just put more um, fences around it and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Never, compartmentalize. We know we never do look at you know all the adults in there. It comes out in different ways. They're they're tormented by it. Yeah, it comes out different ways. It's it, but it, it, it's all there. It's, it's all people are people are people are cruel. They're afraid to hide hide from things, and uh, uh, it never really stops. It just gets a little bit more sophisticated, I guess. Yeah, and she gets she gets to be that manifestation of it, and also so much of that part of her per- personality feels unlocked by grief. And I, I think this movie does you know it, it's handling grief through 
every different character perspective in different ways, right? You just never quite know how it is going to appear when it comes around the next corner, whether it's Seth who's going to be confronting it because his friends are dying, whether it's uh, Dolphin dealing with the death of her husband or Cameron dealing with absolute grief as a veteran and the stuff that he saw it in, you know, the the nice islands, uh, as the movie calls it, or, or mom dealing with the grief of the loss of her family. She's dealing with grief from the moment we start the movie. She's already stricken with grief in a way that comes out is violent and unsettling um, to the rest of her family. It's, uh, it's, yeah, it's jarring. Well, and just like the people themselves, like, you know, keeping that thread of violence running through where people kind of like, you never quite get away from that. I mean, even just the way watching Cameron treat his mother, treat his brother, like it, it always is coming through in ways where he has never quite figured out how to get past that either. Like he violently shoves his brother down when, uh, when he kind of scares dolphin off as they're talking at the cemetery, his mom hugs him a little too long and he kind of like freaks out on her. Like it's, I don't know. I just found it to be so interesting the way that the character interactions portray that level of like, yeah, we're either exploding frogs or we're, you know, you know, having these types of interactions with people because we just have not quite figured it out. Well, I think I think what they're trying to do there is basically, you know, just show show uh, we are just a, uh, just a whole world full of uh, wounded creatures, and that when you do find love, it's a very precious thing, and you have to you have to really, you know, don't take it for granted. You know that uh, that uh, you know you know if if you, if you find somebody who loves you, then uh, you are a very lucky person indeed. And uh, that's that's I think that's the point that, it, that you know that's that's in also in um, uh, Dolphin's speech you know and when all this sh- all this shit happens uh, just pray you have somebody who loves you. That was quite the speech. <laughs> like, like she really is going down that road all the way as you go into dementia and angina and it's like yeah. Yeah. He's still eight. Still yeah. eight. I, well, and I, I love that se- that sequence where, you know, he peeks in and he sees them and, and uh, Cameron is completely naked in her lap and she's just like touching his skin, kind of caressing him. And it is a, a completely non-sexual endeavor at that point that also looks like a vampiric, an act of vampirism. And I thought that was just a, a really sort of interesting contrast in sort of childhood view adult view once again sort of celebrating that what that conflict looks like um to them as adults it's an act of loving one another through hardship and that that's powerful yeah andy i you normally we talk about award season first but i want to talk to you about derivative works apparently this movie has inspired a lot of other people I think that speaks uh, of the director who also is somebody who works in so many different mediums that he created something that was uh, so visual and so provoking in a number of ways that uh, particularly bands seem to have latched on to it. And there have been a number of bands that have been inspired from it. uh, And (laughs) to the point where at least three of them, there's a British band, Coil, uh, there is the Canadian uh, musician Phil Western and also the industrial slash noise rock duo Uniform, all of whom use uh, dialogue excerpts uh, in their in some of their music. Wow. And then there's a Scottish band, Riverhead, that pulled a still from the movie to use on the cover of one of their albums. So, yeah, I think it's just interesting that they 
it's drawn people to it in interesting ways. Yeah, I, I do. That's fascinating. Yeah, um, and and it seems like I, I don't listen to any of those <laughs> those bands. Uh, I don't have a sense of what kind of music that is, but it strikes me that they're all in sort of the same the same crowd with this movie, sort of culty, strong, small legion of fans. Yeah, I think that it definitely feels that way. Or, sure. Um, how to do it award season, after all. This was a film festival film that's predominantly where it got its recognition. At the uh, Sitges Catalonian International Film uh, Festival, it was uh, nominated for three. It walked away with two of them. It was nominated for Best Film, but lost to Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer. Lindsay Duncan won Best Actress, and it won Best Cinematography. At the Locarno International Film Festival, um, uh, Philip Ridley won the Silver Leopard. He won the Fipresky Prize and the CICAE Award. And then the film was also nominated for the Golden Leopard, but lost to Random Waltz. Uh, last but not least, over at the Stockholm Film Festival, uh, Ridley won the Fipresky Prize there as well and was nominated for the Bronze Horse, but lost to The Natural History of Parking Lots. So it sounds like a film festival film and you know to the point where when this film premiered at con we didn't talk about this but when it played the critics declared it already a cult film before they even walked out of the room yeah before the cult knew it yeah right they just they were calling that really count that doesn't <laughs> count you can't call you can't call your shot on a cult film you need a cult first ah yeah well they were right i think it, it took its time, but it, uh, I think that there's probably a cult. Which comes first, Andy, the film or the cult? That's the question. <laughs> I guess we'll never know now. All right. Uh, how did it do at the box office? Uh, this is a tough one. I don't know if it's because it's Canadian and I just couldn't find the information or because it's more of an independent film, which often means you can't find the information. But just there is not a lot of mon- a lot of information out there about its finances. I did find that Ridley did have a budget of one and a half million or three and a half million in today's dollars. The movie premiered at Cannes in 1990, then opened in Toronto September 9th, 1990, and then the U.S. June 28th, 1991, in a limited release opposite The Naked Gun, Two and a Half, The Smell of Fear, Terminator 2, Judgment Day, and the limited release of Europa Europa. It looks like it earned only 17000 domestically, but again, I can't really tell if that's domestically, is that a Canada domestic? Is that uh, international? I don't know. Sometimes when you get domestic figures, it includes Canada, but I just can't tell anything. So um, yeah, I guess, unfortunately, that's all I have with this one. I think it's made even more difficult for you because in Canada, they budget all movies in kindness and the exchange value to US dollars is very difficult. It's like kindness and syrup. That's so true. So true. I love Canada so much. (laughs) Anyway. What do you think of the title? I know it kind of ties in with um, everything going on, uh, kind of the reactions to post-World War II, dropping the A-bomb. You've got that photo of that, uh, that baby that, you know, he as, as Cam is talking, telling his brother about the photo and how this baby had kind of that silver skin-like mirror. Uh, he never really kind of fills him in on everything as to like what, what led to that and everything. But I mean, it's, it's an interesting title. I, I feel like it kind of ties into the vampirism and also just kind of like the inward look and everything. I mean, what's your sense of the title? 
Yeah, I mean, I th- I think a lot of that I mean, there's there's that sequence um, where he's showing him the three photographs, and the way I interpret that is is that there's a there's one photo of him of uh, Seth and Cameron together, uh, which represents the world he knows. Then there's the uh, picture of the kid uh, with the, the burnt face, and that's the world that is unknown to him. Uh, then there's the the, the naked uh, pinup girl, and that's the world that's hidden from him. It's the things that are unknown to you, and I think that's what what they're trying to get across with the with the title. We're looking at we're looking at things that are unknown to you, and you're trying to get it into to fit into maybe one of the other two categories. I mean, that's 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 kind of the way I I kind of see. We're 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 looking at we're looking at the world that is unknown, and we're trying to figure it out. Yeah, I I, I like I think Andy, you posted something in our our community when we watch the movie maybe it was in your letterbox review it was something about how like yeah it's a movie that starts with vampirism with like uh, uh like leaning in on vampirism but man that is just the start and i think that i think for me that's that's one of the sort of more blatant tools of the title which is we're gonna make you think that it's something that it's absolutely not i think it works it's a it's a lovely little onion that you know only at the end of the film does it start to sort of peel itself for all the different sort of ways you can you can look at it it's it kind of does what what titles do when they work best yeah such a fascinating film you know, I, I, I'm thrilled that you brought this to us to talk about, uh, Anson. It is such a unique film to discuss. Uh, thank you so much for, uh, for picking it. I, I'm glad that this was one that uh, was on your radar so that we could have a chance to talk about it. Yeah. I, I always like to, you know, kind of maybe be a little champion of, of, of films that probably need a, um, you know, a bigger look than they, they normally wouldn't have. So, yeah. I think, uh, you know, you know, even if it's not the greatest film in the world, I think it deserves a better look than than it got in its original release. It's so. fairly rare that that you could that somebody has brought a movie to us that like not only not seen but had legitimately never heard of. Like this, this was completely out of the blue. Uh, and it's, it was it's a great little rewarding watch, and for all of those reasons, for sure. Thank you. I would love a retrospective that included this because uh, this is one I would love to see on the big screen. It, like going back to the visuals, I mean, it's just it's a stunning film from start to finish. And having a chance to just kind of see it up on the big screen and let it wash over you, it just would be it would be fantastic. Yeah. Well, uh, so what are you uh, up to these days? Do you have anything you want to plug uh, as as we're wrapping up? Any any places you want people you want to direct people to check you out on on the web? Anything like that? Right now, uh, we're in the middle of a, a strike, so Hollywood's a little shut down right now, so there's not a lot of work for me. In the meantime, I've been posting stuff on the internet of uh, work that I've done, so if you want to see that, one good place to go is to go to Instagram, and on Instagram, I am, uh, you can find me under Anson Jew Art, or go to Twitter, and it's Anson Artist, or X, I guess it is now. Um, <laughs> We'll always call it Twitter. It's yeah, it'll always be Twitter to me, right? <laughs> uh, the next movie that I've worked on that's that's going to have a release is uh, an indie horror film uh, called Slaughterhouse. You know, which is I don't know if it's a it's a comedy horror thing. It's not like a CG thing. It's 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 old school. You know, uh, uh, puppets of a of a sloth, a, a killer sloth in a sorority house. So. <laughs> I imagine if you are a if, if you like if you like uh, you know like Chucky 
like yeah. Chris, I worked on Chris of Chucky here. If you like any of the Chucky films, I'm sure you, you, you probably uh, get a kick out of uh, uh, Slaughterhouse, which is, I guess, uh, coming off, coming up at the end of this month. I'm looking at the poster and the trailers playing in silence right now as you're saying it. And I cannot get to this movie fast enough. <laughs> <laughs> that is amazing. I can't wait to to see your uh, sketches when those finally make it to Instagram or Flickr. Like, I can't wait to see the initial boards of this film. Yeah, yeah. That is fantastic. Uh, well, we, you know, I mean, we're big supporters of everything going on out there with the WGA and SAG after. And I know it's affecting so many people yeah. outside of those particular unions. And uh, we certainly hope that everything gets resolved uh, sometime soon so everybody can kind of get back to work. So, uh, you know, fingers crossed with all of that. Right, yeah. AI is not going to be able to do your next uh, uh, reflecting skin or even slaughterhouse. So let's uh, let's try to make sure that our, our our writers who actually lived a real life can uh, keep on writing and make uh, work that uh, that people can really relate to, rather than just a, a repositioning of you know visual and you know cultural elements that are just kind of shuffled around. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's 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 you you want something that, that really speaks to real humanity, like reflecting skin, like the film or not. Uh, um, it does speak to something that is actually very real. Yeah, I have a very difficult time imagining AI understanding the complexity of human emotion quite well enough to produce something like the reflecting skin. That's the <laughs> right. I just don't see it. Not at all. Not at all. Well, Anson, again, thank you so much for joining us here today. We really appreciate it. It was a pleasure. Thank you. For everyone else out there, we hope that you liked the show and certainly hope that you like the movie like we do here on Movies We Like. Right on. Movies We Like is a part of the True Story FM Entertainment Podcast Network. The music is Chonk Clap by Out of Flux. Find the show at truestory.fm and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Letterboxd, and Threads at The Next Reel. If your podcast app allows ratings and reviews, we always appreciate it if you drop one in there for us. See you next time. I love having these wonderful chats on movies we like with all these industry guests talking about some of their favorite movies. So many great conversations on that show about so many great movies. We have so much fun having these conversations, but producing the show week after week does require a lot of work behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our Originals page when shopping for books and movies that we've covered. Your purchases made through our links give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these incredible conversations. The Originals page at thenextreel.com slash originals links to the source material for all the adapted film discussions on The Next Reel's family of podcasts. Purchasing through our links supports the show. It's your one-stop shop for Amazon and Apple links where you can buy your copy of the original source material. Original material for movies we like, movies like Casino Royale. The Silent Partner. Never Let Me Go. Silver Linings Playbook. There Will Be Blood, based on Upton Sinclair's Oil. I believe it's Oil! Oh, yeah. I forgot the exclamation point. <laughs> Plus, by using those links to buy your next read, Apple and Amazon show us a little bit of love, which allows you to support our family of shows with minimal effort. 
thenextreel.com slash originals. It's a great way to support the show and find your next page turner. That's right. Head over to thenextreel.com slash originals to pick out your next read and dig in today. I've been podcasting since 2006. In that time, I've tried countless hosting platforms. But in August 2022, we switched to Transistor to power all of our shows here at True Story FM. And it's been a game changer. I love the Transistor allows unlimited podcasts and storage without extra charges. We can publish so much content. And we do. If you want to start up a podcast, do yourself a favor and host your show on Transistor. With their one-click publishing, you can get your new show onto all the major podcast directories effortlessly. And their website builder lets you quickly build custom sites for each show. The detailed analytics are invaluable, too. You can access all kinds of listener data anytime. Oh, and the versatile players allow you to embed episodes anywhere to reach new listeners. Plus, the team behind Transistor is super responsive and keeps making the platform even better. After using countless hosting services over 15 plus years, Transistor has been hands down the best podcast partner for us. If you want a hosting platform to take all the worry out of getting your podcast out into the world, go to thenextreel.com slash Transistor and check it out. Support our show and support your own show by going to thenextreel.com slash Transistor. Start growing your podcast today. 